universe is filled with secrets and mysteries, leaving us with many questions to be answered. We find ourselves searching for those answers as the very fabric of space, science, and society are converging. Here for the first time, these worlds collide. Oh, what you? What are you saying? All you trekkies and TV addicts Don't mean to this, don't mean to bring static All you Klingons in your grandma's house Grab your back street friend to get loud Say Doc, what's up in this shit? I'm a man that's on a mission Like a scientist When I'm applying this Check, 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 check it out What, 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 what's it all about? Now, get busy! I'll talk, but I Tyson, you're a personal astrophysicist, and tonight we're featuring my interview with actor and American treasure Alan Alda. And he's probably best known for starring in the TV hit series MASH from the 1970s. It went for 10 years, and he's appeared in more than three dozen movies since then. And what you might not know about him is that he's also a vocal advocate for science communication and in sharing the wonder of science with the world. So let's do this. So my co-host tonight is comedian Matt Kirshen. Matt, welcome back hey, to Star Talk. You, Neil. you host a podcast called Most Likely Science. Is it's, that what? It's probably science <laughs> is the name, Neil, and you always do this. <laughs> and I also have an old-time friend of Star Talk, Heather Berlin. Heather. Uh, uh, Heather Berlin. She's a neuroscientist and professor of psychiatry at Mount Sinai Hospital here in New York. Mm -hmm. And you also hosted several educational programs over the years. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you got, you got street cred in what we're doing here because we're discussing my recent interviews with Alan Alda. So Alan and I sat down together for a one-on-one -on -one chat at the 92nd Street Y, which is a community center in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And we had a lot of fun on stage talking about his new book and about science communication. So let's check it out. Well, let's go. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. <laughs> keep the applause when you get them. You got, yeah, you right. gotta keep, Might as well stay in You got to run with that. Uh, I just wanted to comment that this illustration of you has slightly more hair than you currently have. I just did, <laughs> I, well, you know, I usually do my interviews on the radio where I still have my hair. <laughs> Uh, so, Alan, it is, it is an honor and a privilege to be on this stage with you. Um, you're, you're native to the area, right? You're, you're homegrown New Yorker? Well, I was born in Manhattan on 32nd Street and 3rd Avenue. Okay. Yeah. Like, was... First time I ever got a hand for being born. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, in, in K through 12, did you have any particular science influences, a good or a bad experience with a math teacher or a science uh, teacher? Well, I got polio when I was seven. Ooh. And so I, after that, my, I had to have a tutor for a while, and my parents kept me tutored until the seventh grade. And uh, I had a teacher I didn't like too much. This isn't scientific except for the fact one day I was drawing a nude figure for the pleasure of the person next to me. <laughs> and he, for, for the person next, next to, him. to him, yes. 
That's and the he wrestled it out of my hand, and I was really pissed at that, you know? So when April Fool came around, April Fool's Day, I prepared, my, my, I prepared him a sandwich to eat, and luckily my goldfish had just died. So I put the goldfish between two slices of Wonder Bread and gave him a snack. I didn't expect him to actually eat it. I thought he'd lift it up and look at it and say, oh, April Fool. But he put it in his mouth and bit on it. And now I'm looking at him, and he's got this tail hanging out of his mouth. And I thought, I got to tell him before he swallows that. And then I remembered the picture, and I thought, eh, screw him. <laughs> so this is kind of like a science experiment. What yeah, to, it really was. What to yeah. do with a dead goldfish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I did do experiments as a kid. You know, when I was six years old, I had a card table where I would mix things, mix my mother's face powder and toothpaste to see if I could get it to blow up. Wait, did you then put it either back in the toothpaste tube or back in the powder tube? No, no, but I once opened up her watch to see how it worked inside, what made the hands go around, and I couldn't get the case back on, so I bit it. Oh, to try to squeeze it back together. To squeeze it back together, and I left tooth marks so she knew who did it. (laughs) So I was a good scientist, but not a good criminal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think regardless of what the results of an experiment turn out to be, what matters is the curiosity that led to it. Which right, clearly because whichever way it goes, isn't this right, as a scientist, which, whether it goes the way you hoped it would or not, you've made some progress along some path, and you've kept your curiosity alive. That was great. I love the start of the clip, because you could see the struggle that I believe always goes on in your mind between genial host and scientist. Because you're like, on the one hand, you're like, welcome guest. And on the other hand, I observe that you are bald. (laughs) No. No, it's not the amount of hair he had. It's just the comparison of the actual amount of hair. to Which is a more important scientific analysis. It's it's his hair over time. Yes. The variation. Yes, yes. But that's a current book. So I think the the illustrator was just lying. (laughs) What happened there. I, I wonder, Heather, is it in your experience or just in general... Do you think it's common that some people develop a kind of scientific curiosity by taking stuff apart that they can't put back together, like watches? Yeah, I mean, I think we're all born with this innate curiosity, you know, to understand the world around us. And as we develop, unfortunately, we tend to lose that curiosity because, you know, our our prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed until we're about 25. And before it's fully developed... And for boys, it's not until they're 40. Like about 80. (laughs) Never, ever. Ever, yeah, not ever. But that kind of is what puts the filter on, you know, and says, okay, that behavior isn't, you know, conforming to social norms. But when you're a child, anything goes, and you're very open to experience and curious. Um, So you, you construct things, and you ask lots of questions. And I think the really important thing is how do we keep that curiosity alive when we're adults? And I think scientists are really good at that, is always asking questions, always wondering and asking. And even when you get well, an kids answer, who, well, So we're adults who never grew up from our childhood. Pretty much. And that's yeah. one of the things I love about that clip is you and Alan both describing what's essentially a prank as, no, this is science. We were doing a science experiment. <laughs> so it's just a matter of perspective is what it you're is, saying. It is, it is. All it's saying, like, the man is a scientist. What I wondered after that, introduction with him, whether there might have been sort of some parallel universe where he might have become a scientist instead of an actor. I just asked. Let's check it out. So if you had this curiosity 
what, was there some fork in the road where you say, I could be an actor or I could be uh, a scientist? No, never, no. I, I, I was lucky enough to go, I followed my nose. And what I seemed to be good at, I tried to do more of. Although, it's a little crazy for an out-of-work actor. I went nine or 10 years and we were married and had three children and I still wasn't making a living acting. But I knew it was for me somehow. Well, that's how you know it's love. Yeah. You know what I figured out early on? That I wanted to act with people I respected in material I, I loved in front of an audience that got it. And that's all I wanted. It didn't matter to me where that would be or how much money I'd make doing it as long as I could earn a living. That's a very pure goal. Well, I really felt that way. And then I wound up doing that for 11 years on MASH. And it was a wonderful experience. So, so Heather, you saw MASH when it came out. Were you a yeah. fan of the show? Well, I mean, I was probably watching Sesame Street around oh, that time. How old do you think I am? Excuse me. I saw the reruns, yeah. yeah uh -huh. You know, my father is a doctor, and so I kind of always grew up in that kind of medical world. And then I remember when I first saw MASH, this realization that I always had envisioned doctors as being this very austere and serious, and, you know, they're doing surgery and they're very focused. And the idea that they were just bantering and, and telling jokes and making light of it, you know, that that these doctors are people too, and also how they use comedy in the face of tragedy as a coping strategy. You know, I thought that was brilliantly done. And this show, I mean, it was it led the way for all these other shows like ER and, and the rest of it. I mean, it was really ahead of its time. So this show was on, I think, for 10 seasons. It was nominated for more than 100 Emmys. Wow. The show won 14. He won five of them. So it was a highly celebrated and, and decorated show. Funny you mentioned his uh, his Emmys there, Neil, because it's game show time. <laughs> What's this with you and the game shows? <laughs> they love a game show. Look at them. Okay, all right. Oh wow. It's oh, Alan Alder trivia time. Old dad and a bag of chips. Old dad. Okay. Oh, wow. All right. We've got some Alan Alder facts or non-facts. Okay. All right. See Let's if you see. can work out which ones are true. Um, he didn't sign on to play Hawkeye until six hours before the pilot was shot. Ooh. You know, that's so precise in its delivery of information, I'd say it has to be true. It was actually six and a half hours. <laughs> uh, no, it, <laughs> you, you are correct. That one is true. That oh, one is okay. True. All right. All right. Hey, he apparently didn't want war to be a backdrop for light-hearted hijinks. He wanted to show that war was a bad place to be. So that was his resistance. That was his resistance. That last moment. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. Fact number two is Alan Alder the step cousin of Rick Moranis? Ooh. I'm going to have to say false. Again, that's so yeah. precise. <laughs> I'm going to have to say yes. Neil, I'm afraid you are wrong. Oh, uh, okay. That one is false. No one is a relative of Rick Moranis. <laughs> <laughs> he just came into existence. They're still studying, still studying his genome. Yeah, as a perfect being. Okay. <laughs> okay, is Alan Alder the first person to win an Emmy for acting, writing, and directing? Heather. Um, maybe true. Maybe true. It's a very specific answer. Uh, Heather again has taken oh. it. Hey. <laughs> He did, and he once did a cartwheel down the aisle. Younger days. Are you going to do that when you win an Emmy? <laughs> I don't know. I, no, 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 I'm not. No, Damn. no, no. Uh, so let me ask you, Heather, is there a... Uh, uh, he listed three ingredients that helped him uh, find his compass point. Mm -hmm. What was the people you respect, material you love, 
and an audience who gets it. Mm -hmm. So do you think that that should or is also the key ingredients for science communication? You know... An audience who gets it? I'm going to have to say often it's the opposite. Oh, so you're saying it's not a prerequisite that they get it in advance. It's your duty to make them get Help it by the time you're it. done. Help yeah, them get and, it. And, and it's not always material you love also because it's, you know, trying to debunk pseudoscience isn't the most interesting thing to do as a scientist, but I think it's, it's a duty. Well, coming up next in my interview with Alan Alda, we actually learn how to learn. I asked Alan about the origins of his lifelong interest in science. Let's check it out. I was interested as a very young man in spiritualism and mental telepathy, and I've read hundreds of books on the subject and did experiments. And I was reading a book that was supposed to be, the, the story was that it had been dictated by a man who was dead 200 years already to a living person through a medium. And he said, this is how matter is made. It's made of three constituent parts. Ask any physicist. But I said, I don't recognize this, but there's a physicist who lives across the street. I'll ask him. I said, does this make sense to you? And he said, I don't know. I haven't heard of anything like that. So then I said, well, I'll look in Scientific American that they ought to know. And I started reading every article. And then I was introduced to this whole new way of thinking. A universe of inquiry. Based on evidence, based on observation. And I gave up what I thought was lacking in evidence. And I got excited by this, this quest that science was on to understand how the universe works and how they could understand the deepest things with the tiniest bit of information they could extrapolate, but not in a crazy way, not just making things up, not science fiction, but scientific evidence. And it, it was just so exciting to me. So, Heather, he transformed in this moment, seeing that evidence mattered. This is interesting, because I presume, like, just as real scientists, neither of you has ever had scientific theories that you've got from ghosts. Yeah, my, none of mine have come from, from ghosts. Just That's checking. Correct. Yeah, right, yeah, cool. yeah, just no, want to verify. Sure. Right. Yeah. You don't do ghost-based research, so he, was, he chose the right path there, going from, like, ghost messages to real science. Well, so, let me not even say it's the right path. It's just he discovered what the wrong path was, because it was not supported by objective evidence. And, and he got excited about yeah. it. So, so Heather, when you sort of discovered the scientific method, did you get excited? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought, wow, it was, it was a way to I get, get away from this subjectivity and tap into something bigger and greater than myself, like trying to uncover these true truths of the universe through that this method. That apply to us all. Yeah. So then why doesn't everybody get that excited? You know, I think... A lot of people think of science as done for and by other people, like they're not a part of it. So my husband's a science communicator, um, and he, he, he's a rapper, but he raps about science, and he'll, he'll talk about findings in neuroscience and say, we discovered this, and we discovered... And Your husband's a rapper communicator. Rapper, science communi communicator. Communi yes. Okay, is that the first time that sentence has ever been uttered <laughs> in the history of the world? Yeah, there's absolutely no need for the word for A rather than the to make that description. <laughs> exactly. yeah, he's Actually, one of many rapper science communicators <laughs> out there, but, like, he's one of the better ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but but he'll talk about neuroscience findings in, in my field and say, oh, you know, we discovered this and we did. And I used to call him out, like, why are you saying we? You know, you didn't discover it. And he said, no, I mean, we as like the collective we, as like humanity, you know, yeah. as mankind. And and then I kind of he took a, a moment. Piece of the action. Yeah, he did. He did. But but you know, I think if we all think about it as it's this unifying, that it's it's discoveries meant for all of us. It's not like these scientists over there doing this separate thing. And it's a way for us to uncover, you know, the the these realities. Uh, interesting you say that because the, the moonwalkers, when they toured the world, people would come up to them and say, we did it. These are people from other countries. Right. So they, there was a collective we in the accomplishment of our species. And there's truth in that because none of those accomplishments could have happened without the collective accomplishments of all of humanity. Like you couldn't have put humans on the moon if it hadn't been for the discoveries of mathematics by the Greeks and right, the right, like everything leading right, up to that point right. combined to make it happen. So, it, so do you know, did I ever tell you my summary of the scientific method? It's, it's very simple. Do whatever it takes to not fool you into thinking something is true that is not, or that something is not true that is. That's it. Do whatever it yeah. takes mm -hmm. because we are susceptible to these. Yeah, and also, I mean, our brain, our, our brain is just in, uh, interpreting reality in different ways. You know, we have these visual illusions all the time. It's just one example. So what we're perceiving in our mind's eye does not necessarily correlate with reality. We're completely biased. So the scientific method is amazing because it's a way to get around that, you know, to be objective and get away from our own personal biases. So, Heather, I wonder, uh, because Alan mentioned pseudoscience as a, as a first step, towards him recognizing what is and is not true. Is that a common, I mean, pseudoscience relates to what you think is true and how your brain is duped yeah. into thinking so. And you study the brain. Mm -hmm. So is this a common pathway that people take to find real science? Often, uh, it starts out with a, a belief, a pseudoscience belief. Even with studying the neural basis of consciousness, let's say. I mean, it started with dualism, right? Descartes was, you know, I think, therefore I am. And there was this separate mind. And he thought that it came together in the pineal gland, that the soul came down and met the body through a gland in the brain. But it was something separate. And as we started to understand more about how the brain works, there's uh -oh. less and less room for this sort of... Belief in okay, it. so what you're so you you made a bigger story than I even thought mm -hmm. because he's giving his personal story going through pseudoscience. You're giving the larger story where some of our deepest understandings of how the mind works had their origins in pseudoscientific thinking. Yeah, I think most science starts out like that. We have some vague idea or concept, and then we start honing it and honing it and honing it. And the more we discover the reality, the more we can separate out the pseudoscience from what's real. I mean, it's both on a grand scale and also personally for me. I mean, one of the reasons that I became a neuroscientist is because I had this fear of, of death. And, you know, I thought if I... So now you don't have a fear of death. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> I still don't want to die. But now she knows why she has that fear. And that's, <laughs> that's crucial. Well, I thought, you know, can I, if, even if I die, do I still have some sort of mind that I can still exist? Even does your soul like, persist? Right. Does my soul persist? And then, you know, well, where does your soul come from? Oh, so the brain. Oh, if, how does the brain make our thoughts? And as I started get delving deeper and deeper, this idea that a soul that will go on, I started to lose that belief, but I became fascinated and in awe by how the human brain works and how it gives us this capacity to understand ourselves. And his version of that experiment was reading Scientific American, which took him to a, a whole new place. Right. Well, speaking of Scientific American, Alan Alda's next great TV project after MASH was as host 
of the PBS series Scientific American Frontiers. And he hosted that for over a decade. And what does he do? He meets scientists and asks them questions, and he brings a sort of a childhood curiosity into the lab. And so I asked him about the success of that series. Let's check it out. We did something that's not usually done on that kind of a show. These weren't conventional interviews. I didn't go in with a list of questions. I went in just with curiosity and my own natural ignorance. I had plenty of that to go around. <laughs> you know, it, curiosity plus ignorance, I think, is a good combination. Yes, a brilliant that's, combination, yes. And you got to know that you don't know. Yeah. That's really helpful. But that led to just a conversational approach. And if I didn't understand them, I didn't pretend I did. I just kept after them until I got it. And that changed them. That made them look at me in a personal way. The tone of voice became personal. The language they used, the, 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 the terms they were using were not technical terms anymore because they had to make me understand. You're sure they weren't thinking, how do I get this guy out of here as fast as I can? I'm, Let me I'm, try hard to get him I'm, to understand. Oh, was, they, they would sweat bullets. They'd think, <laughs> you don't get it yet? That's not it? Okay. <laughs> Okay, because we had, you know, we, we shot a lot of stuff and then cut it down to where I, I looked like I got it an hour sooner. <laughs> but but one, one, one scientist was wonderful. She, she was really wonderful and conversational with me. And then she remembered that this was just like a lecture she gave. And she turned away from me and looked into the camera and started lecturing the camera. And her tone of voice changed completely. It wasn't personal anymore. The vocabulary changed. I couldn't understand what she was saying. So I coaxed her back with questions. She came back to me. And then we got warm again, and it was conversational. That was a real lesson that if we don't make this contact and really observe each other, let the other person in, it's not going to be, it's not going to lead to something live, lifelike happening. It won't be alive. So, so, Matt, ignorance is usually something people don't like to admit to. Mm -hmm. So, on your podcast, is ignorance a part of how you run the show? Well, we put probably in the title for a good reason. And yeah, absolutely. Like, we're lucky enough that we have this listenership that is half science people who like comedy and half comedy people who like science. And what we encourage and what often happens is every episode we get emails and some of them are, hey, here's something interesting that you should talk about on the next episode. And then the other half are, here's what you got wrong on the last episode. <laughs> and that's wonderful. Like, it's really exciting when uh, we talk about earthquakes and then a seismologist writes in to go, well, here's how it really is. And we get to give their explanation of what we got wrong. But what it means is you are honest enough and candid enough to actually celebrate the fact that your ignorance was corrected. I think so. And I think yeah. well, there's a line to be drawn, though, isn't there, as well? Because I think you can be too proud of ignorance, too. Like, ah, I don't know anything. Ah, this stuff's all mumbo-jumbo to me. But it's, I think it, there's sort of creative ignorance. There's sort of in, inquisitive right. ignorance right. where, where like, oh, yeah, I don't know this stuff, but please tell me. And, and like, and I think Alan puts it perfectly. Just keep telling me until... I tip over from ignorance to knowledge. As opposed to brazen ignorance. There we go, Where yes. you don't know what you're talking about, but you think you do, and you're yeah. up in somebody's face about it. Are these sciencey professors with their big words and ideas? Yeah, 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 yeah. no, I, like, we, we, we're like, no, like, tell, tell us, because we don't know. And, and that's the other thing. I didn't know why real scientists were listening to our show at first, because I was like, we're idiots. Why are you listening to our show? And then it took a, another scientist to write in and go, you know scientists aren't experts in all science, 
I am just like I, I'm practically a layperson in most things that aren't my field. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They know they they have a little bit more knowledge and they know the scientific method, but a physicist doesn't know mar marine biology. Right, right. Your field is full of equations, which again, that's I think one of the things you do well is you are great at converting those equations into understandable ideas for the for the general populace. So, like for example, what. What does a scientist mean by equals mc squared? We are describing the equivalence of mass and energy in the universe. Mm -hmm. They're two sides of the same coin, even though in our lives we experience them as something different from one another. And that's great. And for f equals ma, going back uh, to a previous generation. I, that's Isaac Newton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Force equals the mass of an object times the acceleration. So this tells you how much force is required to accelerate an object of a given mass. And uh, so, okay, switch it up. What, Isaac Newton. What would a non-scientist mean by uh, Netflix and chill? Oh, I oh, have it. I got it. Wait, because that's an equation. Netflix and chill. Exactly, but that's a layperson's equation. Oh, a scientist would say, care to copulate under recreational pretenses. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, up next, Alan Alda, American icon will explain what it means to actually listen to one another for change on Star Talk. Bringing space and science down to Earth. You're listening to Star Talk. Welcome back to Star Talk from the Hall of the Universe of the American Museum of Natural History. We're featuring my interview with actor Alan Alda. And that interview was held live on stage at the 92nd Street Y right here in New York City. And Alan showed me an exercise he does to help teach science communication. Check it out. The mirror exercise is a very basic improv exercise where I'm looking in the mirror and you're my mirror. Mm -hmm. And you have to be totally in sync with me. What, what I, whatever, however I move, you, you can't let there be a lag because there's no lag with a mirror. It's exactly right. the same. Except moment. for the speed of light time delay. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody notices that, we're dead. That's a superhero person. Yeah. Now. Okay. Okay. So here. Okay. <laughs> now I. Now he that. didn't blink that entire time, and I'm like. <laughs> That's good you were keeping up with me. Now, I did that deliberately because it's pretty clear that I'm leading and uh, he's not following when I go too fast. And, be, and the, what this is so good at implanting in people's minds as they begin to study communication is it's the leader's responsibility to make sure that the follower is following. You lead me now. Okay. Uh, um... A little fast, I can't follow. Okay. 
That is awesome. So I got Matt so, Kirshen here, yeah. my comedic co-host, Matt. Hey. And I got Heather Berlin, neuroscientist, and joining the panel, I have Natalia Reagan. Natalia, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is not your first Star Talk rodeo. No, not, uh, not my first rodeo. You're an anthropologist nope. and also a comedian and a, yes, and a writer. And I'm just curious about something. There's, weren't you part of an improv troupe before guilty, this? Guilty, guilty as Because improv, you got to do some of this, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh God, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like you know, living mimes. It's it's it can be pretty painful sometimes. That was your first time doing the mirror. You've done it plenty, right? That, oh God. That was no, that's my first time mirroring. Yeah. You missed the perfect opportunity to kiss Alan Alder on the lips. <laughs> I would have paid good money to see that. Uh, but it is a way to connect with your audience. And, and a big part of improv is getting uh, your partner uh, to say yes and. It's all about yes and, yes and. and. And when you're dealing with an audience, you want your audience, when you're connecting with them, to say yes and, yes and. Like, well, what's next? You want them to keep up with you. And a lot of uh, academics and teachers, lecturers, already do improv because, you know, they're always having to adapt to what their audiences. If you're teaching uh, a, you know, a, a group at JPL about astrophysics... Jet Propulsion you, Labs. Exactly. Yeah. You mm -hmm. can talk about... You can use them big words. Where if you're at a you know, monster truck rally or a town hall meeting or a high school, you have to speak in their terms. And that doesn't necessarily mean talking down to them. It just means speaking their language. So, so, so Heather, what, do, what does neuroscience say about this sort of mirroring? And I heard about something called mirror neurons. Right? Yeah, I mean, so, so there are these mirror neurons, which were discovered actually in monkeys about 20 years ago, where um, within the motor cortex, there are these neurons that respond both when you're doing a movement and when you're observing somebody else doing a movement. Oh. So we think it has to do with mimicry, like monkey see, monkey do. And so when you are watching someone else moving, it'll activate your own motor neurons. Now, people Is that why when I see someone yawn, then I feel like yawning? <laughs> in that same moment? It could be. It could be, actually. Why well, yawns are contagious, actually. Um, no, really. Okay. But, um, but these, these mirror neurons, then people started extrapolating and saying, well, maybe they have to be, maybe they're involved in empathy. And, oh. and, and it's actually one of the most, it's been called one of the most hyped neurons in neuroscience. Um, because I think we're, we're pushing it further than really where the evidence has, has shown. I mean, there's a whole neural network that's involved in empathy. And it's not necessarily just about these mirror neurons. And then self-awareness is something completely different. Just like in, in, in animals, we, humans do the mirror test. At about 18 months, we can pass that mirror test of self-recognition, but self-recognition is a whole other set of neural circuits in the brain. Wait, wait, just remind me, you have an 18-month-old child right now. <laughs> yeah. What well, kind of experiments are you doing, doing on your child? Lots of <laughs> <laughs> My child is actually, I have a 10-month-old, and he well, is way ahead of schedule on the mirror recognition Yeah, of course. Test, so. Of course he is. And doing calculus and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know. Looking fine every day. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is something hilarious about very young babies don't, they're sort of constantly shocked by their hands, and they cut, mm. there's an age at which they don't even realize that this is them. Right. Self or even well, very and For Matt, on. he still has, he's still looking. <laughs> well, yeah. You have no idea how much effort it is to keep this together right now because I am constantly, ah, like it, it's only professionalism that is stopping me from shrieking and I want that acknowledged. But you know what's actually really interesting is very young um, babies have senses, a sense of fairness. They they have empathy. They they like one puppet if, if it's a good puppet versus a bad one. But this empathy that presumably has value in communication. And, and our, our sort of anchor topic today is communication. So would you agree as a neuroscientist that this, this mirror exercise can bring you a little closer to your audience or at least the 
the person you're trying to communicate yeah, with. Yeah, it's about making that connection. So it's, it's, again, getting away from that idea of just having a monologue or lecturing to really having a conversation and communicating. Mm-hmm. I actually got from Bill Nye, one of your guests here, great piece of advice he once told me was, when you're talking to a general audience, talk as if you're talking to one person, your best friend, mm-hmm. and you're telling them about the science. And that's how you really make that connection and understanding, are they really getting it? You know, And, and if they're not, slow it down and really... Just be talking to that one person. It's a, it is about that connection. What if your best friend is also a neuroscientist? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's work as well. Whole thing like you know this, so let's just skip ahead. <laughs> yeah. So Heather, you you co-produced a Broadway show. Yes. Off Broadway show. Yeah. Off Broadway show. Off Broadway and, show. And, and and if I remember the title, it's Off the Top: Neuro, The Neuroscience of Improvisation. Correct. That was a show. A show. And we just did it at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Yeah, recently. And so so. And it has rapping in it? It does indeed. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was smart. I figured that out. But, uh, so what is there, do you know anything about what's going on in the brain during a freestyle rapping? Yeah. So actually this started because my husband is a rapper and he was doing this freestyle, which was really impressive. And I st- and, and actually this is when we first met and I invited him to wait, my wait, lab. Is freestyle the rapper's counterpart to improv for a comedian? Improv for a comedian, jazz improv. Okay. Um, you know, theater okay. improv. So Just, it's all, so basically I wanted to understand what's happening in the brain when people are improvising, when they're improvising state of mind. Because for me, it's a way to access the unconscious. And what was found is that there is a unique pattern of brain activation that you get into where you you get decreased activation in a part of your brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is having to do with filtering your behavior to make sure it conforms to social norms. Ooh. It has to do with your sense of self. So when you're in that flow state, you lose your sense of self. The moment you become too self-aware, you lose that that flow. That makes sense. But wow, it's the same yeah. way you sort of want you want to get so good at an activity that it gets pushed into the subconscious. That it's like muscle memory. The yeah. same way you can't, if straight. you think too much about walking, you suddenly walk weirdly. Right. It just is that extra So you step. want to practice it consciously to get to the point where you can not have to think about it and let go. Right. And so you're saying, so if, you, if we put your husband in, in, in an MRI or F, FMRI, MRI. functional... Magnetic uh, so, so, so you would see certain predictable parts of his brain lighting up. So what, I, I actually put him in an MRI. Oh, you did? You did? Yes, I put I, him I, in an I, MRI. I said if. Yeah, no. There's no ifs in my house. He oh. went right in there. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Uh, so no, all, all your loved ones are subjects. Well, if they have a talent. <laughs> oh. Wow. That stupid baby right now. <laughs> this you're going to have to learn some tricks if you're going to get into the into right. mummy's MRI. <laughs> get some skills going, baby. <laughs> um, but yeah, I had him actually do a memorized rap and a freestyle rap and looked at the difference in brain mm. activation between these two conditions. And interestingly, you had decreased dorsolateral prefrontal cortex activation, increased medial prefrontal, which has to do with the internal generation of ideas. So it's coming from within, but the filters turn down. You had evidence down. of that, yeah. Yeah, your sense of— it's not rote. Right, exactly. And, 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 your, and your sense of agency is turned down, the filters turned down, so it allows for novel associations between ideas and creativity. And what's interesting is the same pattern of brain activation was found with jazz improvisers as well. Mm. Well, Alan Alda, of course, had no access to fMRI, so he didn't otherwise have this kind of backdrop to think about how to communicate science. He came to communicating science through his field of acting. And so I asked him about his training as an actor and how that shaped his his, his modes of communication in real life. Let's check it out. You don't say your line because it's in the script. Right, right. It is in the script and you remember it, but you say it because the other guy 
does something or says something that makes you say it. Compels you for that to be the only thing that belongs in that moment. Exactly. And the energy that comes out of that, the way it just came out of you, because you were finishing my sentence and you were reacting to what I just said. That energy is real. It's not mechanical. Whereas if I said to myself, now I'm going to be very energized when I say this line. And I get very energized. And it sounds like somebody's talking into a garbage can somewhere. Whereas if I really let myself respond to you, my performance exists in your eyes. It comes out of what's coming from you. If I let myself be changed by you. And that got me interested in the idea, which is a little radical, maybe not everybody can go for this, that I don't think we're really listening unless we're willing to be changed by the other person. So some part of you has to be susceptible. Yeah, not, you, that doesn't mean you're going to change, but you're willing to change. If, if, it, if it really is something that, that strikes you, that really hits you. But if you say, this, this person doesn't know anything, this person doesn't believe what I believe, I'm not even going to, I'm going to let them finish talking and then I'm going to tell them the, the real story. That's not communicating. Not communicating, it's not listening, it's just waiting for your turn. It's dueling monologues. <laughs> so, Natalia, uh, you, you create product. Yeah. What is, your, what is your knowledge or evidence that people are listening? That's, a, that's an excellent question. Uh, for me, like uh, Alan mentioned, I, for me, I, I want to make sure we never insult the audience. And I feel like your field and my field have something in common because humans are obsessed with two things, ourselves, anthropology, and our place in the universe. And we're at a time when we have, scientists have an ethical responsibility to teach the world what we know. You know, we, I can talk to people about how, if you look at the human genome, there's not very much human, uh, variation within our species. Therefore, we're one big family. And you can take a step back and look at the Earth and say, look, it's a beautiful blue, green, brown orb with no lines between countries. So it's, it's an excellent time to really have that discourse, have that conversation, make the eye contact, and not talk down to each other. Cool. So, Natalia, thank you for joining us on thank this segment of Star Talk. Up next, actor Alan Alda explains his theory of the existence of dark empathy in the cosmos when Star Talk returns. Is Star Talk. Welcome back to Star Talk from the Cullman Hall of the Universe. We're featuring my interview with award winning actor and science communicator Alan Alda. And he explained a communication term that he coined called dark empathy. Let's check it out. It's a little like dark energy. A little like in, dark energy. That, what is that? In, well, in that dark, in the same way that dark energy is the opposite of gravity, and gravity's pulling us in to some cozy connection, and dark energy's pushing us apart to more more distance. It's a little like that. A lot of people consider empathy to be the same thing as sympathy or commiseration to be on the side of the other person doing good. Some people have said the more empathy you have, the better a person you are. I don't think so. I think 
it's a tool and it can be used in a good way or, or a not so good way. Um, it's an essential tool, I think, for communication because you've got to know what's going on in the other person's head to communicate with them. However, it's a tool for good communication, but it's also a tool for working against people. For instance, bullies know what you're feeling and they can twist your feelings and make you hurt. And they do it because they can read you pretty well. They know just how far to go. To Are you saying bullies would make good psychologists? Is this what you're saying? <laughs> well, some may be, I don't know. So here's an example that's like in a marriage, right? Guy is up late, it's after midnight, his wife's already in bed, and he notices there's a huge pile of dishes in the sink. And he thinks, I guess I ought to do something about that. What are the odds that he'll do something? Not so great, but maybe if he uses a little empathy and he says, what's my wife gonna feel like when she wakes up tomorrow and sees those dishes in the sink? And he actually connects with her feeling of dismay. Chances are he might wash the dishes and chances are he might find out doing the dishes is foreplay. <laughs> That's uh, beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, 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 I guess so. My husband does the dishes every night. Oh. It's true, though. No, but it's true. It's true. I, I do the dishes, like, half the time. All right, that's not bad. No, half but the... you commit to it. <laughs> so, Heather, were you a bully? No, no. But you could have been because you're a psychologist. Yeah, no. I, we use our powers for good, not evil. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, you know, being able to have what we call theory of mind, you know, understand what another person is thinking and get sort of into their skin. Uh, can you um, learn that? There's some, to an extent, some people there are, are really genetic differences. Good. Some and, people are really good and others really not good. Yeah, I mean, there are people, you know, on autism spectrum or with yeah. autism who have great difficulty understanding what other people are thinking. So I think you, so there's clearly a clearly then there are parts of the brain that serve this. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we, we know that there are certain neural circuits that are involved in theory of mind. And we can give people theory of mind tests and watch what parts of the brain light up. Well, actor Alan Alda actually founded a school, and it's called the Alan Alda School of Science Communication. And you know what he does? He uses acting and improv to improve the communication skills of actual scientists or graduate students. And so we discussed the connection between learning and these other talents that he brings to the table. Let's check it out. You have a particularly acute sense of comedic timing and comedic sensibilities. And personally, I have found that when people smile, I think they're more eager to learn. And that must have been something very well, important. Well, that's an interesting thing you said. Would you go into that a little more? What do you mean by that? Who's the interview? Can I? Would you let me interview you? <laughs> what? But I'm curious. Why do you say when they smile? There, What gives you that impression? That's an interesting thing to say. Uh, I found that if something makes you smile, you come back for more of that because you enjoy the oh, feeling of oh, having smiles. That's good, that's great. You, you seek more. I have an, a similar feeling that when we're laughing, we're vulnerable. We're seldom more open and vulnerable than when we're laughing. And I think, and I've, I've interviewed uh, some, uh, some science teachers, professors, who, especially one I talked to when I was writing the book, who said his, he feels his secret weapon is humor. When he gets them laughing, 
they're they're more absorbent. Absorbent, you know, for the information. No, no, I get that. Yeah, interesting. I I mean, am I empirically? I agree with that. Yeah, that's your experience. Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. And it it happens that I I find the universe to be a hilarious place. So (laughs) (laughs) that's funny. I I I, I'm really glad I'm stuck on Earth (laughs) because to me. Stars and supernovas and all that stuff out there, they are fiery cauldrons of destruction as far as I'm concerned. Indeed they are. Yes. So I don't want to go to Mars. I don't want to go no place. I want to stay right here. So you want to go to Mars if one of those asteroids is headed towards Earth? No, I want you to get something to push it out of the way. Okay, that'll Okay. Well, coming up, Bill Nye, the science guy, my good buddy, gives us his thoughts on sharing the wonders of science when Star Talk returns. This is Star Talk. Welcome back to Star Talk. Tonight, we've been getting schooled in science communication in my interview with actor and comedian and educator Alan Alda. Let's check it out. You know what's interesting about communicating science? There was a study done, I think, at the University of Pennsylvania, where they studied what were the most commonly emailed stories in the science section of the New York Times. You might think they were about health, about medicine, fitness, things that affect our bodies every day. The most emailed stories were about the wonder and awe found in, in confronting the universe. Mm. That sense of wonder and awe, we all have, we go out at night, we look at the stars. You're telling me? <laughs> you forget who's interviewing you? <laughs> and he said, I had comic time. <laughs> Alan Alda. That's wonderful. He's amazing. So, Heather, what what are your thoughts on the future of science education? Despite, you know, what might be going on politically, I think that we are in a kind of renaissance of... I mean, you know, being... But why isn't it catching on in science policy? I know that there's a lot of anti-science sentiment, you know, in this country that gets a lot of play. But if you look at the other side of the coin, I mean, look at the science march that we had. I mean... All these people. When have we ever had a science march yeah, never, before? Yeah. So I mean, I I am optimistic. Really needed it, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. That's true too. But I mean, the future is getting more people. It's grassroots. You know, get it's now we have the internet. We have a place for nerds to go. Where you know, when I was growing up, there was no place. Right. So right, I right. think that the more we had we, no community. Exactly. Yeah. That and was we the have woods. This community. Right. <laughs> well, before we wrap up this episode of Star Talk, let me catch up with Bill Nye, the science guy, my buddy, and just to hear his thoughts on communicating science. Greetings from the beach out here in Cali. Now, science communication is what guys like Alan Alda and Neil and I do to get people like you excited about the world around us. Now, when I stand on the beach, I can't help but think about the cosmos and our place within it. The ocean is vast, but the cosmos is somehow uh, vaster. Just, just how vast it is is hard to understand. 
but I had quite a communicator for a third grade teacher. Mrs. Cochran told us there are more stars in the sky than there are grains of sand on a beach. And I remember thinking, that is incredible. How could there be that many of anything? But it turns out that was an underestimate. Modern astronomers estimate there are about 100 times as many stars as there are grains of sand on the Earth, beach and deserts combined. When I think about that, I am humbled and empowered. I am overwhelmed and relaxed, both at the same time. The key is communicating that. Back to you, Neil. Good luck. Thanks, Bill. So I'm old enough to remember where you would go all day, and no matter what channel on television you turn, there was no science there. So it was easy at the time to think of science as this subject you were taught in school. And then when you're done, you move on to other topics. And that science was something separate and distinct from anything you might care about. I celebrate in modern times the fact that any time of day or night, you can channel surf and land on science programming. There's science podcasts. There are entire movies based on actual science premises with marquee actors and marquee directors and marquee budgets. For me, the greatest value is to see that science is not this silo that you can walk around. Science is everywhere. It is not simply part of life. It is not simply part of the universe. It is life. And it is the universe. That is a cosmic perspective. You've been watching Star Talk. I've been your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. As always, I bid you to keep looking up. Like Galileo dropped the orange. <laughs>